Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's interview with uh, Cash Allred. Uh, today's our first interview for the podcast. We've been interviewing founders and equity experts in recent months, and now we have a podcast. So that's exciting. These interviews and the podcast are for early stage founders, their teams, and investors. Uh, it's all about helping create value from equity. We're going to deep dive into these topics, but not all the jargon and complexity. We're going to try and uh, give you answers, actionable insights, best practices, unpack some great stories, and we're going to try and have a bit of fun. So we are talking about financial and legal matters today, but this is all general and and our own opinions. Uh, No advice here for those people that want to get a bit weird about it. Yeah. So welcome, Cash. Uh, I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, We've worked together before, and he has some awesome insights into the VC space. And Today's topic is ways that retail investors can get investment exposure to startup equity. Uh, it's really not cool that investing in startups is, you know, mostly only for the wealthy. Um, I did a little bit of research coming in, Cash. It sort of baffles me a bit uh, while we have these rules. So returns on the stock market, you know, maybe 7 8% per annum, properties about the same. But my research on, you know, Harvard Business Review and Investopedia shows, you know, 11 to 25% random returns in sort of VC and private equity. So certainly love to dig into this and see how we can get retail investors better access and just try and unpack, you know, how this whole thing works, you know? Yeah, of course. I think it's definitely a conversation that's a hot topic right now. We're seeing access to various asset classes opening up across the board, not just in startups and venture capital, but a lot of the history here is built on 1940s Investment Act, and SEC rules that date back to that time. The SEC or Securities Exchange Commission was facing a dilemma where how do they protect widows and orphans as we're coming out of a hard economic period from being scammed and being sold securities that are worthless in yeah. whatever you know investment class that is. It is unfortunately a part of the industry where scammers will come in and, and trick people into giving them their money. And of course, we want to mitigate that risk as much as we possibly can, but it needs to have some sort of middle ground or, or some balancing out of this space because there's so much opportunity and people want to get involved. You know, They want to back innovation, entrepreneurship. They want to see the space sort of powering forward. So yeah, I'm glad to see that things are opening up. Yeah, it's true. And if you know, there's frameworks around what the SEC feels is important to protect those people who may not have all the information they need to make an informed decision. And the SEC essentially has drawn a line where they say, okay, to sell securities, you have to register them with us and you have to report certain amount of information before you can market or sell these securities. And that's essentially the principle behind the way the SEC thinks and operates. And what's that done in startups is it's meant that because these companies are private, they're not publicly traded on exchange, they're not doing public reporting, it's been really difficult for retail investors to get access in the past. But that's starting to change. Because it sort of seems like a good idea, right? Hey, this is risky. We should make sure you're disclosing enough information. Let's put some regulations around that. Like it seems kind of logical, but well, my understanding is the problem is the cost. The cost to provide that information at, for a startup, you know, on an ongoing basis and, and tick all the boxes legally is is super prohibitive. Is that sort of generally a bit of an issue? Yeah, there's a couple things. One is these laws were enacted when information was very scarce, when it was all paper and word of mouth. It was very difficult to truly verify a lot of information. Uh, today, you go out into the town square and you say, "Here ye, here ye, I have some equity on offer." <laughs> exactly, or, or in the 1940s, like, like crazy. 
Yeah, you can read stories in newspaper clippings of salesmen going door to door selling investment into bridges to connect Long Island to, you know, other parts of the country. And it's wild to think that that's the way it operated. But today, a lot of these regulations don't make as much sense as they did. And that's why people are asking questions. They're saying, if I can do all this research on a public company and buy stock there, I can do this research on a property that's next door to me. Or there's so much information, even about the startups themselves, that they can get comfortable with. Why not let them make that choice? Exactly. So the core of capitalism, we need capital to go where it needs to go. We need people to be able to put their capital where it needs to go. But we do need to have some protections in place because, you know, bad stuff happens and it can be people's life savings. So let's dig into ways that people can, um, you know, as a retail investor. Well, let's first of all clarify what that is. So there's retail and accredited. Are they, are they the two main terms that we need to understand here? You could say accredited or unaccredited. Sometimes we say retail investors to represent that independent thing. person, mm-hmm. individual that's like making a choice by themselves. So retail is more of a loose term, but accredited investor is, and I'll back up again to this framework of the SEC says, to sell securities, you need to meet certain reporting requirements and register those shares with certain governing bodies, whether it's the federal SEC or state governments. And there are exceptions to that. So over time, there have been carve-outs where they say, okay, for this asset class or this fund structure, you don't have to register those securities with the SEC, or you don't have to do the same kind of reporting. You can keep some of this information private, but you can only work with accredited investors. This is actually where venture capital was born. It's operated under this Reg D exemption. Okay. So the Reg D exemption is the exemption of information that you have to share to investors, but you can only do that with an accredited investor because they're supposedly sophisticated enough to be able to do the research themselves. Exactly. So they still have to disclose information to their investors, but they don't have to share that information with the SEC to the same degree. So if I'm a Reg D fund, a venture capital fund, I'm not registering shares of my fund with the SEC and reporting to the government, all these things. I just have a responsibility, fiduciary responsibility to my investors. Those rules are still in place, but it's less burdensome to report and to manage that way. Now it's the accredited investor piece. You're like, this is the rule that the SEC says, okay, they're educated or whatever. But the rule that they have Am I allowed to point out here that I know accredited investors that are potentially not sophisticated enough to do this work? Or is that a bit cheeky? (laughs) Well, the SEC has essentially said, if you're already rich, you're accredited. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not sure about that. um, Yeah, they're using income as a proxy for sophistication, which is an insult to everyone who is trying to make it there that has, you know, made themselves sophisticated. And to your, you know, jab, it doesn't necessarily (laughs) mean that they're sophisticated. And so there are ways you can take classes and get certifications to become an accredited investor without reaching those requirements. But those tests are often so broad with information that's so general just about a you know, investment structures in general, okay. that if you want to invest in startups, going and getting those certifications is a huge pain. And you have to learn a ton of stuff that has nothing to do with investing in startups. So mm-hmm. I have found that very, very, very few go take that okay. test. You know, the default is, do you have this amount of income or not? Or do you what's work the in income an industry? Level? So it's assets and income is the pretty simple way to look at it. Like a certain amount yeah. of assets, certain amount of income. So it's different for families and individuals. Uh, If you have a gross income of 200K or more in the two most recent years, 
then you're an accredited investor. And I think it's like mm-hmm. 300,000. There's also like just total net worth numbers. Yeah, for a family. And there's total net worth numbers too that I could go and dig up. Let's dig into retail investing now or unaccredited investing. So what can you do if you don't satisfy this income level, the asset level, if you haven't gone and done this course? How can you get involved in investing in startups and back these companies that you want, help change the world, You know, potentially access some of these outsized returns that we've seen from VC and private equity, or maybe more so, so like early stage, not VC necessarily, but early stage startups? Sure. I've seen three ways. One is through employee stock option pools. That's where you're probably more of the expert than I am, Jason, <laughs> with Cake. So you go and you work for a startup and they pay you in equity in addition to your salary. The second is there's been recent changes in the last decade or so around regulation crowdfunding, which is a separate exemption for individual startup companies to sell shares of their fund. And the third are registered funds. And that's actually something that Sweater's pioneering, and we can talk more about later. But there's some trade-offs between each of those three. Let's dig into crowdfunding, just so we're you know, providing a broad idea for people. Obviously, love what Sweater's doing, and we'll chat about that in a minute. So crowdfunding, it is sort of what it says. You're going out to the crowd. You know, The startup works with a crowdfunding platform and then is able to bring in investment from the crowd. Are you able to share some insights into that space? Yeah. So their job in order to raise money from unaccredited investors is to register those shares with the SEC and to provide all of the information per that exemption and report it publicly so that those retail investors can make an informed decision. Well, it turns out it's super complex and challenging, especially for early stage companies. And so (laughs) these platforms, right? And that's why the platforms exist, right? They're trying to grease the wheels of saying, hey, we're going to help you know what to report, what you have to share, what you don't. You can work with our trained lawyer. We have some accounting partners that can verify your financials. There's this whole thing that has to be done. I guess the worst case scenario for the startup is they say the wrong thing and then somebody invests and, you know, you're probably getting quite a bit of trouble for that. So I think that's another part of that service that the platforms provide and just helping the startups to make sure they're disclosing the right information and which is a cool service. Yeah. And those platforms, like they provide a lot of value because this is so new and because there's a lot of work involved and the founder doesn't want to be an expert in regulation crowdfunding. They want to be an expert in building their company. So they lean on these platforms to do that. The challenge is now you have to pay for all of that. And so I've seen that some of these startups raising on you know, crowdfunding platforms, they have to pay a percent for the platform fee. They have to pay for the account at Verified Financial. They have to pay for the lawyers to get their docs together. Then they have to pay the filing fee. And then on top of that, they have to pay an extra 10 or, or 15% of their raise to market the securities. So by the time it's said and done, they're spending, you know, let's say they raise $500,000, they're spending 10 to 18% of it. Before really? they, you know, by the time oh, you're done, it is it was so high. super, it is super expensive. That's wild. And a lot of the expenses in the marketing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, and not all of it goes to the platform, right? A yeah. lot of it is cost for the platform or just the marketing of the securities. And I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but the SEC is very, they're sticklers about what you can and can't do to sell a security. Yeah. And so regulation crowdfunding is an exemption that says, hey, you can go market these now because you've given a certain amount of reporting, but now you have to pay for it. You have to pay the social ads or whatever else to get it in front of enough people. 
I guess even though there's costs and time, I presume there's a lot of time and effort goes into making all those documents and working with the accountants and the lawyers and doing all the marketing. Capital raising is super hard in the first few years. We all know that until you really start to get the company pumping and then sort of the dynamic changes a little bit back in favor of the company. But people still really love it, right? Crowdfunding is really popular. Big platforms are what? Start Engine, WeFunder. What else have we got? Republic. Republic. Invest. Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch out there. Uh, then they're raising good amounts of capital, I think. Is there a limit on the amount you can raise? I think there's a limit, but it might have increased recently. That's right. So, and I'm not a crowdfunding expert to that degree. So, oh, okay. I mean, you can just, people listening can Google this Google. to verify. But regulation crowdfunding, I believe it's- Chat GPT uh, for I, it. Make your whole uh, crowdfunding plan for you now. <laughs> totally. I think Red CF is something like $2 million a year, or at least that's the old one. It was $2 million, Now they've upped it to $5 million in a 12-month cool. period. Well, that's and pretty so cool, I guess, more if, you're than gonna, that. if you're going to go to all that work, maybe now the percentage of your raise can come down because you can raise a bit more with similar amount of effort. So that's kind of cool. Well, I've seen that some of these are charging a percent. So I don't know if the percentages change gotcha. that much, even as gotcha. you grow, but some um, of it does, I'm sure. Like Definitely, look for, and- definitely look for fee-for-service providers if you can. Let's do a quick rapid fire, a uh, little bit of um, some technical term stuff. Let's get off crowdfunding. That's definitely an avenue for retail investors to get involved and for people to raise, startups to raise. We've touched on accredited investor. We've touched on Reg D. What about Reg CF, Reg A+, are they worthwhile to sharing a little bit of info with the crew? Reg CF is the exemption that allows for equity crowdfunding. That's the crowdfunding one. Got it. Yeah. Yep. And Reg A+, is also a form of regulation crowdfunding, but it is uh, higher reporting requirements, but you can raise up to higher amounts. Okay. So if you're only raising sub-5 million, Reg CF is easier. Reg A+, a similar process, but more stringent. Often the platforms do both. So just a trade-off between those two vehicles. And unaccredited investors can invest in in all those things? In Reg CF or Reg A. Nice. All right. So look, let's get on to Sweater. Uh, I don't know when we met. It was like last year. Love what you guys are doing. We're big believers in community here at Cake, innovation, entrepreneurship. Like, you know, I think that this is how we're going to change the world. So it's been wonderful to get to know you guys. Um, tell us a bit about your story and, and how you ended up at Sweater Cash. Sure. So I've been at a few venture funds and private equity funds so far in my career. Most recently, prior to Sweater, I spent three years at an impact fund. At that fund, we pivoted from a traditional fund structure to deploying philanthropic capital out of donor-advised funds. And this is where my brain started to open up to, okay, if we can get access of capital from different sources that creates some pretty unique strategic advantages that we can leverage on how we choose companies to invest in and how we support them. And at that impact fund, we actually started to build software around managing relationships with our donors and putting the right opportunities in front of them so that we could be very strategic in what we wanted to accomplish. Later, when I met Jesse and he was getting sweater off the ground, it immediately clicked for me. Here's a fund that is seeking to raise money from everyday people Instead of being limited to Reg D, which caps you to 99 investors a fund, you can only work with accredited investors or institutions. This is raising money from thousands of people. You know, regular VCs looking for 100, 150K checks at a time, right? Or, or more. So exclusive. I just love, you know, how you've been able to really open it up. Like, how many investors have you got in the sweater fund now? 
I joined two years ago. It took about a year for us to get the tech in place and to get the fund through the process we needed to, to allow unaccredited investors to participate. And we launched in June. So up and running for less than a year. And we have five and a half thousand investors so far. Awesome. That's so cool. Uh, is anyone else doing this or are you guys pretty unique? Uh, it seems quite unique. I can't recall bumping into anyone else doing it yet. Yeah. And this is related to you know, back to the SEC conversation, the SEC is okay with unaccredited investors having exposure to startups and private companies. Sweater's just the first one to go through the pain and suffering necessary to register the fund with the SEC. So we actually report to the SEC as, you know, publicly registered fund, and we register those shares so that our retail investors can buy into it. That's Uh, so cool. Well done. So innovative. And it's been great. The reason why maybe nobody else is doing this is because (laughs) traditional VCs, they don't want to deal with the headache of thousands of investors. If they could have five investors to raise their $100 million fund, they would do it. But the other reason is that Sweater doesn't charge carry. Oh, you don't charge carry? Not in the same way that a traditional VC would. So traditional VC is charging a management fee annually, but then they also charge carried interest on the back end as the companies are selling. Sweater actually charges very similarly to what a brokerage account would, or if someone has money in a mutual fund, how that would operate, where because we're pricing the assets in the fund every day, and we're reporting that to the SEC, uh, we're just charging an annual fee on the value of the portfolio. So if we invest 100 million, but then two years later, or four years later, it's double that, we're charging the annual management fee on on, on that new, on the new price. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Whereas a traditional VC fund is doing it on committed capital and then carried interest. So okay. it's easier for our retail investors to understand. But a traditional VC is not going to give up their carried interest to no, uh, right, right, right. to do what we do. Well, let's dig into the why. Like, why would you go to all this effort? You know, why would you give up the carry? I mean, it's a lot of work, and it seems like it's having a huge impact. So let's dig into that. Well. The founders of Sweater, and I believe this too, we feel that it is insane that there are hundreds of thousands of people that work at venture-backed startups. There are thousands of entrepreneurs that are pitching VCs and know what VC is. And like a very, very small percentage of them have any money in a VC fund. Yeah. And like regulation crowdfunding has democratized angel investing to a degree. Like you can buy shares in an individual startup through regulation crowdfunding. But yep. that's not venture capital. Venture capital no. is putting your money into a fund. It's and really hard to do manager. that. You got to look at yeah. every deal. You got to try and diversify yourself. I mean, it's a lot of work. And most people between work and family, they don't have time to sit around. I mean, of course, it's cool if it's a hobby or whatever, but getting access to a VC is a totally different beast because, you know, we've got people like yourself and your team going out and, and doing all that hard work to pick companies and create diversification. So, yeah, it's an awesome opportunity. And you want your money not just in the companies that choose to register their securities on a crowdfunding platform. You want to be in startups that do do that and don't, right? And so there's that selection bias. And I'm not saying that those who raise equity crowdfunding are worse companies. I'm just saying that there are fewer companies. Absolutely. And and that's just something to keep in mind. And the choice Uh, has been taken away from you uh, because you're just on that platform. You only get that platform's opportunity. So I think that's cool. And I want to dig into something you just said there about bias. So, you know, we believe there's a lot of strength in the community. And I know we talked a bit about diversity before, and it's diversity of opportunity and it's diversity opportunity of the right companies to get access to and the right companies to back. So share a little bit of, I guess, about the how the crowd adds value to the sweater offering. 
kind of one of our taglines here is that venture capital has the power to shape the future, which it does, but the right to shape the future belongs to everyone. And by allowing thousands of investors to invest in the sweater cashmere fund, when we invest in a startup, we can turn around and talk to them and tell the story of what they're doing to this massive community investors, plus 50,000 other people that are on our mailing lists. And when we do that, it provides a ton of value for these seed and series A companies. That alone in itself, just like putting a pre-built community on their cap table, but we they interact with us the same way they would any other VC yeah. is a powerful like, story to them. Cake has a big cap table. You know, we've been community led all the way and our angels are so valuable for us. They champion us. They, they listen to our updates. They go out, they do introductions. Like the crowd is incredibly powerful for, for building brand and loyalty and, and sort of, you know, that's like critical in today's business environment, isn't it? It's true. And I think it resonates just even the ethos plus the practical piece of that resonates with the entrepreneurs. The other thing is, as an industry, there's a lot of criticism about a lot of the venture dollars going to white men in the US. I would support that. <laughs> it's not cool. <laughs> a lot of it is practical problems. So let's just break down those incentives for a second. You have a GP, let's say that the GP is a white man who has raised money from a few dozen, not a ton of accredited or institutional investors that are often white men. And so if I'm a GP and one of my investors brings an opportunity to me, so GP is the VC that's actually making the investment decision, LPs are the investors just for people listening. But if the GP has an LP bring to them an investment opportunity that's a friend of theirs, they actually feel like they have to come up with a reason to say no. That's their default yeah. because they don't want their LP to be upset with them. So they yeah. have to keep their LPs happy. And what this creates is a dynamic where it's friends helping friends and they all look the same. They go into the same schools. They're in the same circles. And despite what we do in measuring and pushing VCs to be more equitable, there's back of their mind incentives and biases that will yeah. push them towards people they already know. They're strong compare biases. It's hard to work against those things no matter how much you try. Exactly. And then you compare that to a model like Sweater where... You know, maybe I'm a white male. Yes, yeah, me I'm, too. I'm Just in case no one noticed. <laughs> yeah, but but our investors are thousands of everyday people. Well, maybe I've met a few of them, but most of them I've never met. And they're bringing their friends to the table. We have a scout program over 100 scouts. A lot of them are invested in the Cashmere Fund, and they're naturally bringing a huge set of diverse founders from across the country. Yeah, and we're seeing that. We're seeing naturally our deal flow is incredibly diverse. Lots yeah. of women founders in our portfolio. And it's happening naturally because the fund structure fits what the American public looks like. It. And you're um, uncovering problems that otherwise probably not getting uncovered. So I think if you're trying to find opportunities as an investor and invest in opportunities, you know, as an un unaccredited investor through the Cashmere Fund, you know, you're going to be getting access to problems that probably not getting seen by traditional VCs. And I think that's an incredible opportunity for investors as well. I think the access to the opportunities is important and just discovering them. But then the other thing is I'm not incentivized to keep one LP and their friends happy yeah. as much as a traditional VC fund is. And so that frees us to be clear-minded and making those good investment decisions, no matter where these people come from. Love it. Amazing. Congratulations. Um, innovative, uh, solving problems, breaking down barriers. So yeah, super keen to keep partnering with you guys. That's been awesome. I think we're pretty much out of time. Um, let's finish on a high. So 
The creative, healthy lifestyle section. We love this at Cake. Uh, our Cakesters use their health as a platform to live their best lives and it's core to our culture. And how does this resonate with you, Cash? And what can you share from your perspective on you know, how health uh, helps to drive creativity, um, mental health, things like that at, at Sweater? I don't know how many VCs can say this, but I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, Mountain West, United States. And so... Like a lot of my hobbies are more like work focused. I love house projects. I drive a 1965 Ford pickup that I restored (laughs) as a teenager. And I tinker with that. My wife and I, we will have our third kid next week. And I'm fairly young to have, you know, three kids. But I love just healthy lifestyle, getting out with my kids, doing projects with them. We go home to the farm every year and do projects there. And I just think that feeling connected to where you're from and your family is is a big part of that. Whether you go fishing, whether you go hunting, whether you go skiing, I've done all those things and love them all. And I think that that's super important. Uh, that's really incredible, mate. Yeah, connection to family. What a wonderful place to grow um, a great life and a great business from. Let's leave it there. Uh, everyone, that was Cash from Sweater. Good friend of ours at Cake. We're so grateful to have you on to, to share your insights and help unpack retail investing or unaccredited investing. And uh, I think there's been plenty in that for everyone. So thanks, Cash. Thanks, everyone, for joining. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see you soon.